We are back in the book of Hebrews today, and that means we are back at our series, which I've entitled, Jesus is Better. And that's what we'll see again today, that Jesus is better. And that's the big idea, as I've told you before, of the book of Hebrews. And isn't that what we need to be reminded of every week as we gather together? Don't you need to be reminded every single week that Jesus is better? That he's better than the buffet of sins that the devil lays before us. He's better than those desires that we have for things that are wrong. He's better than those things. And I think if you're like me, you need that reminder every single week. Don't you need to hear some good news after you've had a rough week? If you're like me, you drag yourself in here every week and you're desperate for some good news. You want to have burdens lifted. You want to be liberated. You want to be set free. Well, how does that happen? How do burdens get lifted? How do we get set free so that we walk out of here every week and instead of saying, what a great sermon, we say, what a great Savior. It happens when we do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, but we preach Christ crucified. And then several verses later in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why sermons should always be about Jesus. I try to make sure my sermons are always about him, But I haven't always done that. I haven't always done a good job of that. I've preached some pretty horrible sermons through the years. But I try to make Jesus the focus. I try to point out how the law exposes us as sinners and then show us how Jesus is better. Show us how the gospel really is good news. And I've got some good news for you today. We actually made it to verse 4. Can you believe that? We started the book of Hebrews back in September and spent (coughs) over two months looking at verses 1 through 3. Well, today is the day that we finally get to verse 4, and we're actually going to cover all of chapter 1 all the way to verse 4 of chapter 2. Happy New Year. Well, our big idea today is this. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. I've told you this many times before, but I'm telling you again because I think that's the point that the preacher of the book of Hebrews is trying to make here. He wants us to know that Jesus is God's eternal son. And as God's eternal son, through his life and death and resurrection, he has secured our eternal inheritance. And that he did that by his perfect obedience to God's law. And the preacher of Hebrews wants us to say, focused on Jesus, on what he has done for us, or as he will tell us in chapter 2, and we'll look at it in a little bit, if we don't stay focused on Jesus, then we will begin to drift, to drift away from him. If we don't keep coming back to who Jesus is and what he has done for us and all that he is for us, then guess what? We will drift. We will drift away from him, plain and simple. 
And I know this, and you know this from experience. We all know that when we get our eyes off of Jesus, we begin to drift. We begin to experience a heart drift, where our heart will drift to other things. Other things to delight in, other things to treasure. And that's why we need a reminder every single week. That's why when we, together, we gather together every Sabbath as the church, we need to be reminded of Jesus. We need to be reminded that his obedience is what keeps us secure and not our obedience. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that obedience isn't important because it is very important. Obedience to God's word, to God's commands is very important. I'm just saying that what gets you into heaven and what keeps you there is not what you do. It all hinges on what Jesus has already done for you. So of course we need to obey God. Of course we need to hate sin. Of course we need to do what the, the Puritans used to say, mortify sin, put sin to death. Of course we need to do that. And how do we do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit and with the word of God. So we believe in sanctification here at Grace. But doing all of this does not make us righteous. It doesn't make us right with God. And it doesn't keep us righteous. It doesn't keep us right with God. Righteousness is imputed to us. It is reckoned to us, granted to us. It is credited to our account. It is declared. It is spoken over us by God. Our obedience doesn't do that. Our obedience doesn't make us or keep us righteous. And that, of course, is what the audience of the book of Hebrews was struggling with. They thought that their obedience, their keeping of the law, their obsessing over the law, their obsessing over their behavior, they thought that would curry God's favor as well as keep it. They lost sight of the fact that Jesus is better. They lost sight of the fact that after Jesus lived and just before he died, he cried out, it is finished. So yes, obedience is an important part of our lives. And if you think it's not, then just keep living any way that you want to and see what happens. And you know what will happen? Your life will be a mess. If you continue to let sin reign in your mortal body, as Paul says in Romans six twelve with no regard for God's holiness, and you just have a flippant attitude towards sin and think, oh, it doesn't matter how I live, what I do, say, think, then your life will start to fall apart. Yes, God will still love you. Oh, of course he'll still love you. Yes, you'll be forgiven. Yes, the inheritance, eternal life with Jesus forever and ever in a new glorified body. Yes, that will still be yours. All because Jesus secured it for you but your life will become hell on earth. The consequences of sin may eat you alive. If you totally punt on obedience, say it doesn't matter, then your life will be a mess. That's a guarantee. And I think we all know that from experience, right? But the point I'm trying to make this morning is that the point of Christianity is not your obedience. The point of Christianity is Jesus' obedience. Let me ask you this morning, if your obedience was the point of Christianity, how's that working out for you? If your obedience is the point, the be-all, end-all, the focus of Christianity, how's that working out for you? How was your last week? 
How were the holidays around your family members who are crazy? How did you respond? Did you think any weird thoughts about that weird uncle? Like, I wish he would never show up. Did you say anything that you regret? Did you do anything this last week that you're ashamed of? Well, of course you did. Of course I did. You're a sinner. We're sinners. It's what we do. We sin. So we all did things this week that we are ashamed of. And that's why obedience, though very important, is not the focus of our lives. Jesus is. His obedience to God's law on our behalf, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his return, that is to be the focus of our lives. And this is where the Hebrews went wrong. They lost sight of this. Their behavior became their obsession. What they were doing. Am I being obedient enough? That became their obsession, their focus upon the law, and it turned their eyes off of Jesus. And that's why I tell you again this morning what I've told you many times before. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. And that's the point that the preacher of Hebrews is making in this section that we will look at today. So let's go ahead and back up to verse 1 again. Let's get our bearings again. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, here's what was happening with the recipients of this letter. They were not only trying to return to the Old Testament law to be justified, they were not only obsessing over their obedience to the law, but they were also captivated by and fascinated with angels. They began to overemphasize, and perhaps some of them began to worship angels. I don't think so, but I know for sure they began to overemphasize angels. And one of the reasons they began to overemphasize angels and become fascinated with angels is because angels delivered the law, delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, alludes to this. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's also mentioned in Acts chapter 7, verses 37 through 38. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. So angels apparently were involved in some way in the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so because the Hebrews knew this, and because they were already trying to return to the law to curry God's favor, they naturally began to overemphasize angels, the ones who delivered the law to Moses. They reasoned that if angels delivered the Mosaic law, if angels delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses, the law that they were trying so hard to keep, they reasoned that angels must be very important too. 
And so this whole section in chapter 1, spilling over into chapter 2, is dealing with how Jesus is superior to angels because he is God's eternal son. Like we saw earlier in this series, Jesus has always been in this eternal, loving relationship with God the Father. Both God the Father and God the Son were loving one another in eternity past, in and through the Holy Spirit. And so, because Jesus has always been the Son, God's eternal Son, then he is superior to angels. He's Better. In fact, that's how it's worded in the Greek New Testament in verse 4. And the Net Bible, the New English translation, captures it best with its translation. It says this, Thus he, Jesus, became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to theirs. What does that mean? Jesus has inherited a name that is superior to angels. Maybe these questions are running through your mind. They were running through my mind as I was working on this sermon Number one, what does it mean that Jesus inherited a name? And what is the name that Jesus inherited? Well, the answer is not Jesus. Jesus got the name Jesus when he was born. The angel told Mary, you shall call your son's name Jesus. So he got the name Jesus on the birth certificate when he was born. So what was Jesus called before he was called Jesus? The answer, son. Jesus, for all of eternity past, has been called Son by God the Father. God the Father has called his Son, Son, for all of eternity. So that leads to another question. If the name that Jesus inherited is not Jesus, but Son, and if Jesus has always been God's Son, then what does it mean that Jesus inherited the name Son since he has always been called Son? Well, we know that Jesus was loving God the Father in eternity past, right? And Jesus has always been God's son. So how did Jesus inherit this name son? I thought he already was God's son. So how did he inherit the name son if he already was the son and was already called son? Well, here's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making here. Jesus received the inheritance. Or better word, Jesus proved his sonship. Through his obedient life. Jesus proved that he was God's eternal son through his sinless life, through his perfect keeping of the law. And then after Jesus made purification for sins and he defeated death and he defeated the devil, he was then exalted to God's right hand in a new way. That's what verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1 says. He was exalted to God's right hand in a new way as the God-man in a resurrected body. Now, Jesus was God's son with a resurrected body. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here. In eternity past, Jesus did not have a body. He got his body when he was born in that manger, in that dirty environment that we talked about in our Christmas series. That's when he got his body. And he grew up and became a man, and he died. God resurrected him. He has a body right now. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying. Is he's God's eternal son now as the God-man, fully God, fully man, with those two natures united together in one person. And Jesus proved that he was God's beloved son, the one who always obeyed, the one with whom God was pleased with all the time. 
We see this in several places in the New Testament where Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of the Father. Whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. He says, I only want to do what my Father wants me to do. And then we see God's pleasure in Jesus' desire to always do what he wants him to do when God the Father says several times in the New Testament, and he says it at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So all of these verses prove that Jesus always brought God the Father pleasure. And it was his obedience and delight to do God's will as the God-man that proved that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, the one who was always loving his Father in eternity past. So, therefore, Jesus has preeminence over angels... Because he fully obeyed the Mosaic law, the one delivered by angels. And Jesus is superior to angels because he has always been loving his father as son, something no angel could ever claim. Angels did not eternally exist in eternity past. They were created at some point. Those weird creatures you read about in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 where they have these wings with eyes all around and they fly around God's throat. Those glorious, weird, magnificent creatures have not always been around. They were created at some point. They have not always been in God's presence. Only Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit have been around forever. Angels were created at some point, but Jesus has always been with God the Father. Therefore, his name as Son is superior to angels. He is the eternal Son of God. And the preacher of the book of Hebrews proves just how superior Jesus is to angels by quoting a lengthy string of Old Testament passages. Now, we won't unpack each Old Testament verse. You can do that on your own. And I hope that you do go back and study these verses and and see how the writer of Hebrews is applying them to Jesus. But the point is that when you contrast the two, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and created angels, Jesus is better than angels. In fact, even by quoting all of these Old Testament passages here in chapter 1 and applying them to Jesus, the preacher of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is the point of the Bible. The preacher quotes passages about David and Solomon and other Israelite kings, and he applies them to Jesus. He's saying the king that Israel was looking for was really to be found in Jesus, not Saul, not David, not Solomon, not those other kings. And when he quotes these passages that are related to the kings in the Old Testament, he's doing it to make a point, and his point is this. Jesus is the point of the Old Testament. All of these kings were pointing toward the king, par excellence, who would come one day, and that king is Jesus. Now, let's look at all of these Old Testament passages that, that kind of pile up here like a traffic jam. We're just going to have to wade our way through them. So look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or to which of the angels, again, did God say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world... He says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, 
God says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, these angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Remember, the Hebrews were starting to overemphasize angels because angels delivered the law to Moses on Sinai. And since the Hebrews were trying to be justified by the law, their obedience to the law, they naturally started to overemphasize angels, the ones who delivered the law. So here's what the preacher is saying in quoting all of these Old Old Testament passages that we just read. Let me give you a very short and quick commentary on all these verses. One, He's saying this, God never called any angel son. Only Jesus is called son, so Jesus is better. Two, angels worship Jesus. He doesn't worship them, therefore Jesus is better. Three, God never told any angel that they would sit on a throne and rule forever. That's reserved only for Jesus, therefore Jesus is better. Four, Jesus is the one who created everything in the universe, including angels, so he is better. Five, God never told any angel to sit at his right hand. That was reserved for Jesus, so he is better. And lastly, angels serve and minister to believers, those who inherit salvation, all because of Jesus' obedience. Therefore, Jesus is better. So do you see the contrast here? Angels, although they delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, they are still yet created beings who were created by Jesus and they worship Jesus and they minister to believers like us who are in union with Christ. Contrast them with Jesus. Jesus is the one who has always loved his father. The one who obeyed the law that the angels delivered. The one who sits at God's right hand and he's the one who created these angels. So who is better? When you compare angels and Jesus, who's better? Jesus is. That's the point that the preacher of Hebrews is making. This, of course, does not mean that angels are to be looked down upon. They aren't. Jesus created them for one, these glorious and magnificent creatures. They fly around his throne. They worship him. They do his bidding. So we're not to look down on them. But another reason not to look down on angels is this, and it's very practical. They minister and serve us. The ones who have inherited salvation. They minister and serve believers. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, do you really want to overemphasize angels? Just because they delivered the law of God to Moses? That's crazy because they're here to serve you. They're here to minister to you, to those who are in union with Christ. Now, I don't know if that staggers your mind, that angels minister to us and serve us. But how incredible is it? They minister and serve the redeemed. 
Now, I don't know how you envision angels. When you hear angels, you think of angels. But ever since I saw this artistic rendering, this is how I think of angels. Now, I have no idea if angels look like that or not. But I'll take that angel over a precious moments Bible angel any day. That's how I like to think of them. They're probably far more glorious than even that painting right there. So here's what I want you to do this morning. Do me a favor. I want you to think of angels looking like this and keep that image in your mind as I read something that Martin Luther said about angels from his commentary on the book of Genesis. So keep that image in your mind as I read what Martin Luther said. He said this, God has created all these creatures to be in active military service to fight for us continually against the devil and against men also and thus serve us and be to us an unceasing benefit. How amazing grace, isn't it? It's amazing grace. Angels are in active military service. They continually fight for us against the devil, against men, against terrorists, against ISIS, against people who want to blow buildings up and shoot innocent people. These are the people who are stopping them. And if God in his sovereignty allows it to happen, he does. But these are the ones who stop so much that we never even see. And they serve us unceasingly. Why? Because we have inherited salvation, verse 14 says. Because we are in union with Christ. Angels worship Jesus the Son And they minister to God's adopted sons, the ones who now have the inheritance. And how did we get the inheritance? Did we inherit salvation based on our works, on our obedience to the law, on our goodness? No. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that God is the one who qualifies us for salvation. Colossians 1, 12-14 Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God qualifies us to inherit salvation. So when God looks at us, he sees his Son, Jesus. He sees Jesus' perfect obedience to the law on our behalf. He sees the righteousness of Jesus that is credited to our account and therefore we are qualified for the inheritance all because of Jesus. Look, when God looks at you, Christian, he doesn't see what you did last week. He doesn't see what you did last year. He sees what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Now, some of you may want a pass on 2015 because it was horrible. And some You did some horrible things, maybe made some terrible decisions that wreaked havoc in your life, and you think, if I could just get rid of 2015 out of my life, things would be better. Or maybe it was this past week you did something. When God sees you, he sees the sinless life of his son, Jesus, and therefore you are qualified for the inheritance. And the inheritance is eternal life. It's forgiveness of sins. It's it's getting new, glorified, resurrected bodies and being on the new earth But ultimately, it's getting Jesus. It's being with Jesus forever. That's the inheritance. And that's why we need to always be looking at Jesus. Because he is the one who qualifies us to inherit salvation 
and eternal life. That's why we need this constant reminder. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. Now, why? Because it is Jesus' behavior, his perfect life, his obedience to the law that qualifies us, not ours. If we focus on our behavior, and I've told you this many times before, if we obsess about our behavior, one of two things will happen. We will either become prideful or we will become depressed. We'll get proud at how good we've been. Oh, look at me. I'm, I'm being good. Oh, God, you must love me because I'm being so good and doing all this stuff for you. Admit it, we all live there at some point. Some of us are like, in March, we're like, I still have my Bible reading plan. God must love me. I'm doing good. Right? I'm really doing it, God. And we start to get prideful. If I can read the Bible with my kids and have family devotions and I get three or four days in a row, man, I'm like, look at me. What a great dad I am. What a great leader in my home. It's true. When we focus on our behavior at the things that we're doing well, Pride always comes in. And the thing about pride is that if you're prideful, it blinds you, and you don't even know it. And other people see it, and they'll point it out, and you'll say, no, that's not true. But pride blinds. The second thing that will happen is that we'll get depressed if we look at our behavior, at the lack of obedience and the lack of godliness and holiness that we see. And we keep, we say, I keep struggling with those same sins and doing the same thing over and over. Am I even a Christian? Right? Some of you started your Bible reading plan on January 1st, and you're already behind. (laughs) And if you focus on that, you'll beat yourself up. It's the 3rd of January, and I've already blown it. I can't even do three days. I binged watch Making a Murder on Netflix for 10 hours, and I can't even read three chapters a day. Depression. And that's why we must keep looking to Jesus. And that's what the author of Hebrews will tell his audience next. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See, we all have a tendency, because we're all still sinners, to look away from Jesus, to look away from the gospel, and the end result is that we will always drift. Now, I don't think when the writer of Hebrews says that we will drift. I don't think he's saying that you can lose your salvation. We don't believe that here at Grace. That's not biblical. Once you are in union with Christ, you are in union with Christ forever. But what he's saying when he talks about drifting is that if we don't keep the gospel, the gospel message that God redeems sinners based on what his son has done, if we don't keep that message front and center, then we will drift. We will drift from Jesus, which is exactly what the Hebrews were doing. They drifted to overemphasizing angels, and they also began to to focus on doing more, trying harder to earn God's grace through their obedience to the law. But not only will we drift from Jesus if we get our eyes off of him, we'll mess our lives up too. The preacher of Hebrews says that just as disobedience was punished under the law, when the law was given to Israel, if you gathered sticks on the Sabbath, there were consequences. 
They stoned a guy for that in the Old Testament, right? So he's saying just as consequences came when the angels gave the law, just as consequences came to any Israelite who broke the law, he's saying there are consequences to our sin if and when we drift from the gospel. If believers in the Old Testament did not escape the consequences of sin, neither will we. That's what he's saying here. If we drift from the gospel, we enjoy the pleasures of sin and our heart gets hardened, of course God will still love us. That's the goodness of the gospel. Of course he will still forgive us. Of course we will still be in union with Christ. None of those things will change. What will happen, though, is that we will mess up our lives. Just because we are in union with Christ does not mean that we will escape the consequences of our sin. And that's why we must keep hearing the gospel over and over and over. Sadly, I saw this play out recently with a friend, a man who had an affair, and he told me this. As soon as I started turning my eyes off of Jesus, I started to drift, and it got dark real fast. He's totally forgiven of his sin. His relationship with God was never at stake. He is in union with Christ because he's a believer, but his life is a mess right now all because he got his eyes off Jesus. He's praying and hoping for reconciliation with his wife. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here. We must pay closer attention to the gospel, to the good news that we have heard, or we will drift from it. This message of salvation was declared to us by Jesus, as Hebrews 1-2 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And then we hear in Hebrews 2, 1, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So you got to see these two as bookends. Hebrews 1, 2, God has spoken to us by his Son, in his Son. Hebrews 2, 1, we must pay closer attention to what we heard. The preacher of Hebrews is telling us that God spoke to us in his son Jesus and we need to pay much more closer attention to what we have heard from Jesus and what did we hear? It's the gospel message. So understand this, Grace. Hebrews 2.1, pay much closer attention to what you have heard. Hebrews 2.1 is why I talk about the gospel all the time. Hebrews 2.1 is why every sermon should be about Jesus. Hebrews 2.1 is why I talk about what Jesus has already done for us all the time. I'm just trying to be obedient to God's word, which tells us here in Hebrews 2.1 that we need to pay much closer attention to what we have already heard. We need to pay much closer attention, he's saying, to the gospel. Whatever and however much you have heard about the gospel before this moment right now, I don't care how many sermons you've heard about the gospel before this moment right now, you need to pay even more attention to it right now. Do you want to stress obedience to God's word? Good, I hope you do. Get after Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It tells you to pay much closer attention to the gospel. It doesn't give a quotient here. Hebrews 2.1 doesn't care if you've read every Elise Fitzpatrick book. 
It doesn't care if you've read every Jerry Bridges book on the gospel. It doesn't care if you've read every Jared Wilson book on the gospel, every Kevin DeYoung book on the gospel, every John Piper book on the gospel. It doesn't care if you've been to every gospel conference available, if you've gone to Together for the Gospel or the Gospel Coalition or the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors. It doesn't matter what conference you've been to. It doesn't even care if you've written books about the gospel. Hebrews 2.1 is telling you to get your eyes on Jesus more and more and more and more and more. So Jesus declared the message of salvation, the gospel, He says here in chapter 2, and then those who heard him, the disciples, the apostles, they attested to it. He's telling us, we we got it from them. The disciples heard the gospel from the lips of Jesus. We got that message from them. They attested, yes, we heard him say this, that God saves sinners, that God forgives sinners. We heard it. And then the writer of Hebrews says that God proved the truth of the gospel message through signs and through miracles, through wonders, as the Holy Spirit moved among the early church. And he distributed gifts according to his will. So this is good news, and it's true, the writer of Hebrews is saying. The gospel came in real time, and it was backed up by many, many, many miracles. But see, here's where we go wrong. We tend to overemphasize those things. The messengers of the gospel are not the point. The signs and the wonders and the miracles are not the point. The gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed as he wills are not the point. The point is Jesus. The point is the message, the gospel message. The good news that God saves sinners based on what Jesus has done and not anything that they do. Jesus is the point. Now the Hebrews were shifting to overemphasizing Angels, but think about what we overemphasize. You can plug anything in here, and we do the same thing. The disciples are not the point. The apostles are not the point. The early church is not the point. The signs, the wonders, the miracles are not the point. The gifts of the Spirit distributed as He wills, they are not the point. Important? Yes, absolutely they're important. But they're not the point. And that means that your obedience is not the point. Your commitment to Jesus is not the point. And your preaching and your teaching and your book writing and your Bible memorization and your Bible reading and your 2016 Bible reading plan is not the point. Your praying is not the point. Your witnessing, your giving, your serving, your anything is not the point of Christianity. Jesus is. And your 2015 Bible reading from last year that had every box checked off, that's not the point of Christianity. And that's why Jesus should be the focus of every sermon. And that's why he's the focus of the book of Hebrews, which I've told you I believe is just a sermon written to a bunch of churches to remind them of the good news of the gospel. And it is this glorious gospel message that we are being encouraged to pay closer attention to because if we don't, we will not escape the consequences of our sin. If we neglect such a wonderful salvation message and turn to enjoy the pleasures of sin, how will we escape the consequences? We won't. Now, I don't mean that if you get upset when you're putting your kids to bed because they got off out of the room for the 12th time and you get angry, I don't think God's going to strike you down with a lightning bolt. So don't read consequences that way, or I wouldn't be here, okay? I'd be long gone. 
I'm not saying if you get mad in the roundabout at someone because they don't know how to drive through the roundabout, which people in Santa Maria still don't know how to drive through. I'm not saying if you get mad at that person, say a bad word, that lightning is going to come down and strike you. But if you get mad enough that you say a bad word and then you floor it and you rear end that person and cause them to get in a wreck and then they break their neck and they're paralyzed, you're not going to escape those consequences, are you? So I'm not saying that every time you sin, boom, massive consequences come. Because if that was the case, none of us would be here. I'm talking about when your heart begins to drift and become so hardened that you focus on other things. You guys know what I'm talking about. The consequences in your life where you've just made stupid decisions because you wanted something, you wanted sin so bad and you're having to deal with it. That's what we're talking about. We will not escape the consequences of sin. If I go rob Starbucks today, just because I'm a believer, just because I'm a pastor, I'm not going to escape the consequences. I can't say I'm the pastor of that church down the street. Well, then we'll let you off. It's gospel rehearsal that is needed. Continually looking to Jesus that empowers us to put sin to death. As John Owen said, a sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. Puritan John Owen, who wrote the manual on killing sin and putting it to death and resisting it, knowing how it works. His book, The Mortification of Sin. John Owen, the one who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That guy, believe it or not, said that the key to all spiritual mortification, all sin being resisted, all sin being put to death, he said this was the key. Understanding and believing just how much Jesus loves you. That's the key. God's love for sinners like us. That was demonstrated at the cross. That's the gospel. Looking unto Jesus is what will keep us from drifting. Now you may may be thinking, but a focus on grace leads to disobedience. How many times have I heard that? You're always talking about how forgiven and loved we are. That will lead to disobedience. People will do anything they want to. Well, that's the exact same charge that that Paul was was being leveled against Paul in Romans 6. He says, just because grace is so good, does that mean that we can go do anything we want to? Paul says, God forbid, no way. That's not what I'm saying when I talk about how loved and forgiven and free we are. Why in the world would I tell you to go live any way you want to, knowing that the devil will come and then haunt you because of what you did? I know from experience the devil haunts me. He, he shows up with a detailed list of all the things that I've done wrong. Why would I tell you, go live any way you want to, knowing that the devil would show up and say, look what you did, look what you did, look what you did. He would bring condemnation. Why would I tell you, go live any way? Have a flippant attitude towards sin. Why would I do that to you when I know that someone would be knocking on your door all the time and saying, I can't believe you did An emphasis on grace and God's love and freedom and forgiveness does not mean go live any way you want to. And ultimately, why would I tell you to mock the sacrifice of Jesus by living any way you want to? Of course not. Paul's not saying it in Romans 6. I'm not saying it here. I'm just saying looking unto Jesus will keep us from drifting. Now, thank God that part of the good news of the gospel is that God is merciful and he gives us the grace to plod through even the worst consequences of our sin. Amen? If you totally mess up your life because of your sin and there's massive consequences, God will give you the grace to walk through that. 
but we don't get a free pass. If we start to take our eyes away from Jesus, then we will start to drift and it will get dark. And that's why we have printed up our discipleship plans for 2016 for you. It's in your worship bulletin. If you don't have some kind of plan in place to pray, to read the Bible, to give, to serve, then most likely it will not happen. Nobody drifts towards the spiritual disciplines, right? So please avail yourself of this and think about the ways and the steps that you can take this year to help you keep your eyes on Jesus so that you don't drift. And you will notice a very little note in here that is very important. This is not about heaping shame and guilt upon you. Don't fill this thing out, answer these questions, and then in March find it in tucked away in Second Chronicles somewhere in your Bible and you open it up and you're like, oh, I didn't do any of those things. This is not about heaping shame and guilt upon you, so don't go there. It's just a guide to spur your thinking to help you plan and to put some systems in place to help you keep your eyes on Jesus. Why use this discipleship plan? Because we're all just like the Hebrews. We may not be worshiping angels, but what about the things that we do worship? The things that we do overemphasize our job, maybe? Career, family, grandkids, car, iPhone? We worship the craziest things, don't we? We, like every believer who has ever lived, are always tempted to look to something besides Jesus to find hope and fulfillment and rest and peace and satisfaction. We look at 10 million other things besides Jesus, the one treasure that we know will satisfy us. So we can't throw the Hebrews under the bus by saying, really, you guys begin to overemphasize angels? That's weird, because they would look at our life and say, really, you're overemphasizing that? As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, let me ask you this morning, what is it that has captured your heart this morning? What is it that even though you had your hands raised and your eyes closed and you were singing the songs to Jesus this morning, you were thinking of that thing? You ever do that? Whole song goes by and you're like, oh my goodness, I was singing to Jesus and I was thinking about that. What is that thing that is obsessed, you're obsessing over this morning? That maybe even, even throughout the sermon, your mind has kept coming back to that. Is it, is it a, a need that you have in your life, a genuine need? Or maybe it's a want that you have? Is it that overwhelming feeling of weakness, like you just can't go on, life is so overwhelming, you just want to die, you want it to all end? Or maybe it's just how disgusted you are with your so-called love of Jesus. Maybe you're sickened that you claim to love him and yet you chase after other lovers. Maybe you're sick of your lukewarm affections. Or maybe it's your sin that has you so burdened that you've lost all joy. Whatever it is, It could be anything. Whatever it is that has captured your heart this morning, this is what I want you to do. Identify it. See it. Think about it. And then I want you to do what John Newton said and to do what the writer of Hebrews is doing right here. Look at Jesus and compare whatever it is that you're overemphasizing, whatever it is that has captured your heart this morning, I want you to compare that thing to Jesus. Here's how Newton said it. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, Look unto him as he hung naked, wounded, bleeding, dead, and forsaken upon the cross. Look unto him again as he now reigns in glory, possessed of all power in heaven and in earth, with thousands of thousands of saints and angels worshiping before him, and 10,000 times 10,000 ministering unto him, and then compare your sins with his blood, your wants 
with his fullness. Your unbelief with his faithfulness. Your weakness with his strength. Your inconstancy with his everlasting love. Look unto Jesus this morning. Look unto Jesus. And as we prepare to take communion, let me remind you what the bread and the cup are telling you right now. Focus on your Savior, not on your behavior. Let's pray. Father, we stand exposed this morning because of our sin. We may not have overemphasized angels and become obsessed with them, but many of us have become obsessed with our behavior, what we've done right, or what we've done wrong. We found 10 million things to take delight in more than your son. We haven't treasured him like we should. And so we stand exposed and we say, Father, forgive us. Forgive us of our thoughts and words and actions and motives and cleanse us from all unrighteousness this morning. And then may the Holy Spirit impress the love of your son upon our hearts that we would move to the table now in a time of celebration, giving thanks that you love sinners and you've done the most wonderful thing of all to redeem them. You gave us your son. May the Holy Spirit direct our hearts to Jesus this morning. We ask in his name, amen.